Welcome to NextWorks Innovation Talks. Let our podcast inspire you with inside stories and conversations about innovation. Welcome to the NextWorks Innovation Talks. I'm your host, Laurence van Eeligen, and today I'll be talking to Shannon Lucas and Tracy Lovejoy of Catalyst Constellations. Shannon was a long-time entrepreneur at corporates like Vodafone, Cisco and Ericsson, and she's the founder of the Global Entrepreneur Salon. Tracy is an anthropologist who left the corporate world to follow her passion of becoming a professional coach. Together, they founded Catalyst Constellations in order to support change agents and catalysts. They also recently published a book, Move Fast, Break Shit, Burnout, which we will be talking about later on. So, welcome on the show. Thanks Thank for you for having us. Maybe we can start a conversation by talking about your journey as corporate innovators and how that led you to start your own company. Well, it's funny because when I started in the corporate world, I did not see myself as an innovator. It wasn't a word that I associated myself with. I, I saw myself as a researcher first. For me, though, what I can remember is that several environments did not fit me. I would get there and I would look around and I would think, why are they so okay with the status quo? Why are they so okay with, you know, kind of what seemed to me subpar ways of doing things? When I first interviewed at Microsoft, which is where I spent a lot of time, there was this hum of energy that I could experience kind of in my body. I talk about it as this buzz that happens. And now I realize that that's the hum of innovation, right? That's the striving to be better, to do new things, to be creating what's coming next. And once I was there, that passion to be doing the right thing, and particularly for the roles I played, the right thing on behalf of our customers or future customers, was so unnatural in me and the ability to connect dots and kind of see around corners to the future. And so now today I can see that it was such a natural fit for me to move into that role of innovation, but I didn't know it. So it was kind of an evolution that snuck up on me, if you will. Mm -hmm. Yeah, building on the back of what Tracy just said, you know, when I look back, I was equally drawn to those places where there was the buzz of creating new things. And while I got my degree in art history, it was not very many years before I found myself as a network engineer. And, you know, during those times, I was always drawn again to like what the latest new technology that was emerging and figuring out how to apply that in different ways to the world. So, that led me to Microsoft, it led me to startups, it led me to mobile telephony when that was first a thing, when the first sort of converged devices were coming out. But the pivotal moment for me really in the shift like full on into the innovation world happened when I was doing my MBA at the Presidio Graduate School. And I took this amazing leadership class with Cynthia Scott and this assignment came up for us, you know, part of it was just learning the self-knowledge about actually what our skill sets were. And it was one of the first times that I realized that that level of excitement about exploring was unique, <laughs> that the rest of the people weren't off the charts in the way that I was. Um, and one of our assignments was to figure out, you know, what our next perfect job would be. And it just so happened that two roles simultaneously opened at Vodafone. One was helping to build the innovation program and one was a sustainability role, which is really what I had been gunning for. 
And a fantastic mentor of mine, Walter Koch, actually sat me down and he said, think about what you're going to be doing. Think about the day-to-day experience of that. And while I'm passionate about sustainability, filling out a bunch of reports and sort of the things that take up a lot of the sustainability's time weren't for me. And getting to build this sort of you know net new blank page innovation program from scratch it just became clear that that's who I was. And so I got my dream job and I ended up flying all over the world and meeting innovators all over the world and I've never looked back. And so for me, the overlap in your stories is two things. You were both at Microsoft apparently, but not at the same time, I think. Correct. And the other thing is more significant, I think, that you often feel like you were the odd one out. So what does that mean for other innovators? You know, Laurence, as you mentioned in our book, that we study people that identify as catalysts. And one of the things that we hear from catalysts, which, you know, kind of short definition is people who are born change makers, is that they have several moments in their life, whether it's just in day-to-day life or certainly in work contexts where they hear a set of information, it seems really obvious to them kind of which direction to go. And it can be really discombobulating and confusing when nobody else around them seems to come to that same conclusion. And that constant optimism, that constant growth mindset of kind of making things better that I was talking about and that it's embedded in Shannon is at the heart of what we're talking about that we can feel strange, right? When you're someone who constantly pieces together information to help make the world around you better, and you assume everybody else wants it too, and they're just kind of seem okay with what's happening around them with that status quo I mentioned, Mm -hmm. it can feel very strange and it can feel almost like you're moving in fast forward or the world is moving in slow motion. And that's what we're talking about, right, is that you can feel a little bit odd because it seems so natural in your body. And so when you notice other people aren't feeling that way, too, you think, am I the strange one? Is it just me? But also one of the things that I have to think about is that how our Nextworks founder, Peter Hinson, sometimes compares corporate innovators to frustrated enthusiasts because it's really hard for them sometimes to feel useful and even to find happiness in environments that aren't very change-friendly, like you said, that are practically in love with the status quo. So what do you think that corporate innovators need to be happy and feel fulfilled on a job? How do you keep them from leaving to another company? It's such a good question. And I wish more people would ask the question because the truth is they don't need much. (laughs) And the things that they need are actually things that would support really the whole employee base in an organization. I think the first thing is both for the corporate innovator, the catalyst, and then for the executive sponsor, et cetera, self-awareness is foundational. And because we, as a catalyst, get to see the places where, yeah, we might have superpowers and all of that, but we can contribute to our own frustrations by not understanding how to best work with people or even that they work differently than us. I think we've all kind of expressed that we didn't know that at one point we thought we were normal. Mm -hmm. And the same thing is true for the corporate sponsors, the self-knowledge to see how they show up because the first sort of foundational thing, and this is what Project Aristotle at Google did when they were looking at high-performance teams, they came up with sort of the five traits that they need. And the first one is psychological safety. 
Because when corporate innovators are given the remit to go out and figure out what that next big thing is, they often don't go out with their own agenda. They're going out and collecting data, but the thinking that they're bringing back is often divergent from that status quo. And so that's where the beginning of the frustration for the innovators and catalysts happen is not only can their divergent ideas get attacked when they bring that back, which comes as a shock to them because they're just like, I just did what you asked me to do and here's the data, but the innovators themselves can get attacked. And that's where, you know, we talk about the trauma that can happen in the sort of journey of a catalyst. And the other five things that, you know, the Google's project Aristotle said was dependability, structure and clarity, meaning and impact. And just making those things really explicit and creating the safe space with all of those sort of pillars in place is what corporate innovators need. Now, just circling back to the role of the innovator and creating the challenges, we can be really good at bringing empathy, you know, in the first stages of our sort of sensing exercises, our exploration. You know, it's the reason that it's the beginning of the design thinking process but we can kind of leave our empathy at the door when we turn back internally to start to create that change. And we can fail to recognize that, you know, across the organization, there's probably something close to a normal distribution of how excited or resistant people are to change. So I think we also have to do our own work to make sure that we're also meeting people in the organization in a way that will help everybody. Mm -hmm. So what's, Do you both perceive as the hardest part of innovation? Is it sometimes this lack of safety or is it lack of resources, lack of understanding from management or something even completely different? Yes to everything that you've said, Laurence. To me, I would nuance the question because I think, you know, certainly from my perspective coming from product development, I have an answer to the hardest part of innovation But I think agreed with your first part that the hardest part for innovators, right, is that lack of safety, because this is where we see trauma happen for the individual, right? That when you have a situation where a manager maybe lacks awareness, as Shannon was saying, and is inadvertently, because I don't believe that it's typically on purpose, trying to help the innovator swim in their lane or kind of be more appropriate to the culture, and doesn't know how to do that in a way that's giving them air cover and telling them, you know, I have your back, or maybe they don't have their back. What the innovator is experiencing is a fear for their livelihood, which is, you know, kind of a basic survival that throws us into fight or flight. It's a fear about like, am I incompetent? You know, their confidence begins to be shook. Am I really not being heard? And so, you know, you begin to show up in ways that aren't your best self as well, which becomes this reinforcing cycle. And so that lack of safety has really large repercussions for the innovator. The nuance of the question, the hardest part of innovation, I would go back to what we've been talking, circling around in the status quo, right? Success is a very powerful aphrodisiac. And once an organization perceives it's in a state of success, It's very hard to move them away from that. And so in my experience, the hardest thing is convincing key stakeholders that something new is important enough to assign resources and or shift behaviors toward that. We're really rooted in the existing, and this is what an organization is for, right? You build structures in an organization to protect that which you believe is working, So whole new product lines that may be appropriate to develop to be ready for what catalysts see around the corner 
is hard to convince people of that you should stop doing something that's already working. What about you, Shan? I'm so curious about your answer here. Well, I agree with everything that you just said. And the way that I had thought about this was one of my challenges was that I always had bigger ambitions than the organizations. And I don't mean personal. I mean, I could just see what the more perfect, better, sustainable, regenerative state could be for the organization and sort of that lack of alignment, or they might even at the beginning and the outset say that that's what they want. But to Tracy's point, once that change initiative rubbed up against the internal processes, or, I mean, I think one thing that happens a lot is the potential cannibalization or disruption of the current business model, then people shut down. So I think that's the first one. And then the second one for the role of the innovator, and this was a lesson that I learned at Vodafone, I thought that all innovators were the same. Like we built out this amazing innovation champion program and I made myself sick. Like I literally burned out trying to activate all of those people who had raised their hands to help drive innovation. And it wasn't, and this is a probably a great segue to what we're doing now, but it wasn't until a conversation with Tracy when she was my coach, when she started explaining the research about catalysts that I, you know, the penny drops and it's like, oh, that's the difference. That 10 to 15% that we see that leans in so hard and fast that I have to scramble to actually remove the barriers for them instead of creating a five-tier gamified CEO sponsored incentivized program. Like these people would have done it anyway, Laurence, kind of mm-hmm. to your, you know, enthusiastic troublemakers or frustrated troublemakers. Mm-hmm. So I think that was a big thing. And I mean, it's also very healing because, you know, years later now I can see it's like, there might not have been anything that I could have done with that framework in mind, but if I had had a different framework about how do I find the people who are born this way for whom it is not a choice and activate them first um, and then think about the relationship to change even across the innovation team, as it were, and approach that differently. Mm-hmm. And when you talked about helping removing barriers, could you give maybe some examples of how you did this, how you helped remove barriers for them to be the best that they could do? Yeah, I think the first most foundational thing is not very sexy, but it's actually cultivating the community. Catalyst Constellations were big believers in group wisdom. And if someone has already solved that problem somewhere else in the world, particularly with a large organization, you know, multinationals like the companies that I worked for, you don't have to reinvent the wheel over and over and over again. So what we actually did was created that psychologically safe container Because the first part is, can you identify the barriers? Do you know what's actually slowing you down? Mm -hmm. And creating a place where they could troubleshoot some of those barriers and connect with someone who might have solved them. The second one I would say is going far and wide in the organization. So I think not enough innovation teams think about how do you tap legal? How do you tap HR? How do you tap marketing? Because you know, as you're doing the creation process, you're going to need support from all of those organizations. And removing the barriers is things like helping the lawyers, as an example, to lean into new IP arrangements, you know, intellectual property arrangements and things like that. And then the final barrier, which can always be done better, is just getting the executives across the organization to understand the value of the time of the innovators. Because, you know, in a lot of companies, we have these innovation champions or catalysts or whatever you want to call them, but it's not necessarily their full-time day job. And so how do you articulate 
the value and, and really the necessity of having those people in all of the parts of the organization and dedicating some of their core time to that. Mm-hmm. So do I understand it right that your function was more of a defender and a champion of the innovation team? So you let them do their thing, what they were great at, and then you made sure that they had the exact good, perfect context to function in? Well, I wish I had gotten to the perfect context. <laughs> We did our best. Don't be modest. <laughs> But um, yeah, I think that I'm a big believer in that. Like we had a small core team and, you know, we created, like I said, the container for the people who were leaning in the safety and the support so that they could do the localization of the innovation program in their own regions, which is another important thing. You know, the cultural context for innovation is incredibly important. My hardest and best innovation workshop was in South Africa with some local South Africans, a German guy from a big industrial company, a Japanese CEO and his support men from the Japanese company, myself from California. I mean, it was like, wow, that's tough. Those cultural contexts are tough. (laughs) But the thing that we did sort of more globally for the innovation champions was to create a methodology, a shared methodology, a shared view about what we were trying to accomplish, a shared language, shared tools and resources Mm -hmm. so that when we needed the resources across the organization or wanted to amplify it from one country out globally, everyone understood at least that foundation of how we were all supposed to work together. Mm-hmm. Can an innovation team in a large corporate or, or a smaller corporate work without such a champion, without such a boundary spanner? Because one of the things that's a big problem in corporate innovation is the disconnect and lack of integration between the innovation team and the rest of the company. So do you always need somebody who can bridge both? It's the right question, and I'd say with a bit of a complex answer. I mean, I loved listening to Shannon. These are some of the discussions she and I actually haven't really had the chance to have, so this is a joy for me too. Mm-hmm. But talking about the activating of different parts of the organization, certainly if you look at, at case studies, you're going to find that innovation teams that have a senior champion are going to be more successful. There's just no way around it. Mm-hmm. Is it necessary And this gets into also some of the difficulty or challenge you're willing to put up with. Shannon and I have an article that we both love from the Harvard Business Review that is decades old now that talks about how do you successfully bring change into organizations and it's focused on the building of networks. And what it points to is that if you have a really large change, a divergent change it talks about that you want to create, you need to be able to create networks that bridge across different places. You need to be able to tap into and find influencers and advocates that can help you do it, which is absolutely the theory underlying what Shannon's talking about. So if you don't have an executive champion that can essentially be saying, this is what we're doing now, I do not think you can be a successful innovation team if you don't have people who can help you bridge If you have the double negative of no executive champion and you yourself or someone that you're working closely with isn't able to help you bridge to build influence, I think you're going to struggle. I think it's a recipe for failure. What do you think, Shan? Well, I mean, from personal lived experience, what I can say is the toll to the person who is trying to bridge is significant. And so I think we see a lot of innovators and catalysts who are themselves leading these programs, but maybe 
you know, with only a modicum of support from the executives, this is where a huge emotional toll can take because you basically become just stretched energetically trying to connect those two things. I also think it's a question of, you know, what does each organization mean by innovation? If incremental sort of specific product-focused innovation is what they're talking about, then the needs that Tracy and I have just been describing are a lot less. You don't have that tension of bringing something completely net new into the organization that's going to be considered as disruptive. And I think this is where a lot of organizations end up sort of by default because of a lack of intentionality of solving all of the challenges that we've created. So I just go back to the intention of the organization and the self-awareness of the stakeholders and the alignment is key. If you're the person who's responsible for getting one of these programs off the ground or whatever, just remembering to bring your empathy and sensing for what the appetite of the organization is, because otherwise you will be stretched probably to a point of burnout. Okay. Are there other types of people that are crucial besides the advocates or the executive champions? Is it like, I don't know, creatives, design thinkers, engineers, or is it obviously also, it depends on, on what type of company and what it does want to reach? I would point to something Shannon was just saying. What is the type of innovation that you're trying to accomplish to help figure out who should be on the team? There's an absolute necessity for siloed skill sets depending on what you're doing, right? If you are a software company, obviously you're going to need people that can help you build things. But to your point, Laurence, absolutely, you know, people that can help you think creatively. I love thinking about how, you know, Google has built some of their labs and how they bring in diverse thinkers to really help push their thinking in lateral ways. I think that's very interesting. They don't have to be, you know, part of the team all the time. They can be inspiration. In Shannon and I's language, right, the siloed skills and some of the lateral thinking, it's like a layer of what you need to think about. In addition, we love catalysts. And what we're talking about are the, the people that have take in lots of information and can translate that into visions for the future and move to action to help that begin to be. And it sounds like, you know, thinking about innovators, there's a lot of overlap in these definitions. More importantly, on an innovation team, you're going to want to have catalysts who are committed to working together cohesively. You know, not all catalysts want to work in a team. Right. So thinking about that psychological safety and those other components that Shannon was talking about, that we're all you know, working toward meaning, that we're going to come together in a shared way. And so how do you check for people that are going to contribute to a collaborative and psychologically safe environment? Because I have seen innovation teams somewhat destruct because you can have some members who maybe don't want to play together with others. I think the, the thing that Tracy touched on is the importance of cognitive diversity on the teams. Mm -hmm. And I also think there's an interesting thing about sort of like almost a fluid membrane between who's in like the core team versus who you tap across the organization at different points in the innovation process. Even with Catalyst though, and you know, we've done the research here and I think we have more of our own research to do, there's different almost like archetypes of Catalyst. So you might have you know, the person who is really good at the visioning process upfront, someone like an igniter. You might have someone who's a super connector who brings together all of the Catalyst and non-Catalyst to help you get it done. You need those domain expert people that you were referencing, Laurence. You need someone who's evangelist who goes inside and outside of the organization to create the air cover. So there's a lot of different 
archetypes, if you will, of catalysts. And then there's just sort of also the normal diversity. It's like thinking about how long someone has been in an organization because having that deep cultural context is everything. When innovations fail is when they bring in a new person and that person brings in all new people. I mean, that's a recipe for disaster. Hmm. You know, in the past, I've had like these massive spreadsheets thinking about all of the different types of diversity that I would be cultivating towards the punchline. And I referenced this in the book is at the end of, you know, one of those explorations, we got everyone into the room and we realized that we had no sort of, you know, finishers (laughs) in the team. So it's important you have some finishers in your innovation team too, to get it across the the finish line. Mm -hmm. And what do you mean with finishers, people who can launch a product and know how to put it in the market? Not necessarily. It's whatever the remit of the team is that gets the sort of tick of completion. So very rarely is the actual innovation team responsible for fully productizing the thing that they've been in exploration. Usually there's some sort of an MVP handoff to the back end. Mm -hmm. That's why we have the back end innovation, the back end of the organization to industrialize it. But wherever that line in the sand is between the innovation team and the normal processes, it's being able to effectively hand it off to the rest of the organization. So is it dangerous in a way to limit innovation to just one team? Should it be a company-wide effort or how do you see this? Yeah, I mean, that's what I was saying. Even when we were in Vodafone building out the innovation program, 90% of the people who were innovating had other roles. And we intentionally included HR and legal and marketing and the different sort of support structures across the lines of business because 100%, if you become the ivory tower of innovation, you are not very likely to succeed unless you're setting up something like an Amazon, you know, Lab 126 or something like that, where you have an entire structure just dedicated to that. But that's something different. Mm -hmm. So we already touched upon that, the fact that innovators also sometimes make mistakes when they communicate with others, for instance, lack of empathy, maybe. But where do the innovators most often make mistakes when they collaborate with the team that manages the existing business? One of my biggest regrets is not slowing down enough and bringing enough empathy for the internal stakeholders. I thought, because I had these big grand visions of what we could do, I thought if I just worked harder, if I just activated more people, if, 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 that I could create that change. And I didn't realize in that speed and almost arrogance, although it wasn't coming from a place of arrogance, right? Like I genuinely wanted to make the company and the products better in every sense of the word, that I just created a lot more tension than was necessary. And so we talk about in the book at every stage, like when you first start the role or the project, go on a feedback and just listen to where people are deeply and authentically, like really give them a lot of space as you're exploring like where the furthest edges of their comfort level or interests are. And then after you've done that and you've you know started to create something, go on a co-creation tour and bring them along and get their fingerprints on it. And then when you're close to done, go on that feedback tour, like, hey, did we hit the mark from those first things that we you know, did on the listening tour? It sounds laborious. And particularly for catalysts, we kind of want to poke our eyes out about the amount of time that that feels like that takes. But it actually is faster and makes us more successful because we just have a really deep alignment. And I think that this is where as innovators, we can bring our empathy so deeply when we got to understand the world of the customer, but we can, for some weird reason, just check it at the door when we come back into the organization. I completely agree with Shan. Uh, as I was you know, collecting my thoughts here, 
what I was thinking directly aligns is that I think the two biggest risks or mistakes is when an innovation team kind of sees themselves as the heroes or even the inspirers. And I understand how this is going to be a bit peaking. So I'll come back to it rather than partners. And this does go to your question, Laurence, of, you know, kind of who are the right people on an innovation team? Because I have seen teams where they do stack them with creatives, even storytellers with intention, right? Because they want them to spin these tales that help people, you know, kind of see the future and they'll create these amazing movies and videos to inspire. However, once they're connecting with existing product teams, this almost can serve to undercut their credibility as being real, right? That it's this fantasy that is almost for people outside of the company, like a commercial, rather than a real connection into the teams that will be expected to take the ideas and build it. And also, you know, Shannon's getting to this in the the listening tours. When I see an innovation team come in and tell a product team or, you know, a team that's building what they should do without empathy, without understanding, without partnership and making assumptions about their business or making their assumptions about what they may already be planning. I can watch the, you know, kind of personal interactions, the bodies in the room literally getting stiff as they listen and feel unheard, unseen, and then they begin to kind of create a perception of these people coming from an innovation team where they're going to discount them in the future. And so to Shannon's point of being a partner, staying up to date with what they're planning, bringing in their feedback and helping them see you as an arm to extend their work is a much more successful approach. I have tended to see kind of that you know, send people off with the, the movie maker and the creatives to, to tell a story. So what do you think could be a great exercise to maybe improve the communication and understanding between both sides of innovation? Shannon and I really love that we have a model in the book talking about building influence that's slightly tweaked from a book called Influence Without Authority. Where it starts is assuming that you're allies, assuming that you're on the same page and ensuring that you sit down and talk about your shared goals. It's such an important part whenever you experience resistance, which is kind of at the heart of some of the things that we're talking about that we haven't named it. If you can stop and say, hey, do we agree that we want to get to the same place, right? Then the differences we have can begin to kind of melt away if we agree on a similar end goal because then we can talk about where we disagree on how we achieve that, right? It becomes the how that we disagree on and we can have constructive conflict rather than it being personal. And so I think that's always the foundational rather than starting with an inspired story of the future. It's starting with, hey, this is the vision I see. What do you see? How is it different? How is it the same? Can we articulate this? Can we co-create this? And I'd love to hand off to you, Shanta. Then it's the launching point for all the tours, right? Yes, but I would just put even a finer point on what you just said. And with the caveat that it's probably one of the biggest challenges as you're sitting down to align with the key stakeholders that you know are your sponsors or your managers or whomever, bringing the empathy in to get clarity on what success looks like is the goal. 
And it's almost also at the same time impossible because what you are doing is net new. And so there's this tension of also the how, like what will it feel like when we're there? And it's going to be big, broad strokes. And this is why we encourage people to go back through these tours again and again and again, because as you get higher and higher fidelity and more and more clarity on what it is that you're going after, I think one of the biggest disconnects is the innovators may even start off with that level of alignment, but you just can't have the fidelity of clarity at the beginning of the process. And they're like, but we agreed at the beginning where I was going, but they didn't go back enough times to sort of make sure they were still within the guardrails of what the organization wanted. Okay. So let's talk about your book. You wrote a book about a very specific type of innovator, which is called a catalyst. So Why did you write the book and how are catalysts different from other innovators? Catalysts are the born innovators among us, as Shan was, was talking about in kind of, you know, her journey of seeing the differences, right? Of the people who cannot stop themselves from leaning into making the world around them better. The definition that sits behind it for us is people who are taking information, lots of different forms of information, forming that into a vision and moving into action almost unconsciously. The reason we wrote the book, so I uh, had been coaching for some time and was doing a personal exercise to think about who did I want to work with more deeply. And what I did is I did a backward analysis of the folks that I'd been working with and I'd been coaching for about five years at that point. And I saw these themes that didn't align to a lot of typical you know, niches that coaches will pick up, things like female executives or, you know, people in career transition. Instead, I saw these themes of people who take on big challenges, even if they're really scary, people who have a deep desire to have meaningful impact, people who do really wonderful things in their personal and work lives and are always striving to be better. I didn't have a name for it. And so it was in a conversation with one of the clients that I'm referencing that he kind of named it. He said, over the weekend, I realized I'm a catalyst. And I just fell in love with that word. And that launched me on doing more detailed research, talking to people who identify this way. The book is written because the information that I uncovered, Shannon and I realized, didn't exist in a form today. We have a lot of books about the innovation process and about how to maximize innovation, but you don't see a lot of books about the people who are at the heart of innovation, those natural innovators among us. And yet the patterns that we can detect when you talk to people like this are so clear. And so we felt this responsibility to get the information out there and make it accessible. I would just add on what Tracy said. I think there's also an intention for us to create a global movement so that these individuals can see and self-identify and then connect with other people who show up as catalysts because we know that's incredibly healing for them. We also, of course, wanted to help them be more effective change makers and to make those unconscious or sort of innate ways that they show up in the world more conscious so that they can do it more effectively and create more effective change. But also one of the touch points for us when we first launched the company was the recognition of how many people in this community suffer from burnout and to just help them stop sacrificing themselves and their lives and their health as they're trying to create change. So for me, there was also just this sort of side note of this is the book I wish I had 20 years ago. So why do you think that is? Why are catalysts so much more 
in danger than other people maybe to burn out? It's a, it's a big question. I think everything that we just talked about, I mean, in this world, organizations are literally set up for homeostasis, for maintaining the status quo. And whether catalysts are born or activated at some point in their lives, the data is not in on that. But at some point in their lives, this innate way of being to be constantly seeing ways that the world could be made better. And let's be clear, for catalysts, it's often not just at work. It's at home. It's with themselves. There's this wicked growth mindset that's always striving to learn and be better and create more positive change. And so you're up against sort of society's natural resistance to change and change is who you are. And so our job to help catalysts in this movement is first, and this is why we wrote the book, to help them self-identify and understand their unique attributes. But then we have to get the word out to the rest of the world. Like not, we're not advocating that everyone become a catalyst. That would be a disaster. But we are saying, especially in this time of VUCA, this volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous world, which Peter and I have been talking about for a long time, but we can no longer deny these people are your VUCA ready people. And so organizations need to understand that they need them, first of all. And there's a value articulation that I don't think companies have understood thus far. And then what are the foundations that we talked about earlier that will help make them feel and actually be supported? starting primarily off with psychological safety and high trust. So how do you know if you're a catalyst or if you're an executive? How can you recognize these people in your organizations? What are their characteristics? The characteristics are, first and foremost, you are constantly sensing data from a bunch of different sources. So what's interesting for me is that Catalysts will get their, you know, combined sense of inspiration from sci-fi movies and articles that they read and conversations, in addition to the McKinsey reports and all of the data that they're looking at. From that, they start to see multiple possibilities of possible new futures. And then they are able to distill that down into some sort of a vision that they start moving towards, which, you know, Tracy had articulated before. There's There are people who will get to that third stage of creating visions, but then they don't have the same innate, almost physical need to make that vision a reality. And that's a distinguishing factor for me and Catalyst, that move to action fast. We show up with an experimentation mindset. So when I came in contact with things like design thinking or lean startup or theory you, it was like they were describing my innate way of being, which was why I was so excited about them and wanted the whole world to know. I was like, hey, this is a thing. It's not just me. And then finally, we can be perceived as being risk takers, although it doesn't usually feel all that risky to us, certainly not as risky as it might seem from the outside, because we've internalized that data that we got at the beginning. The challenge that we have, and this is one of the, I think, the biggest challenges that we have to help the whole system figure out better ways of interacting is it feels risky, but I had all the data. So I'm going to move forward because I am very confident that this is the right path forward. But we don't have a way to articulate that data like a McKinsey report would, because there is an intuition, there is an empathy piece in this, there's some, you know, sort of almost magic dot connecting that happens that makes it hard to communicate to people who are much more on the data, sort of traditional data-driven side. So maybe to conclude for all the innovators listening out there, what is the one advice, and I know that's hard, but what is the one advice that you would give them? Maybe 
Tracy first, and then Shannon? So to the innovators out there, I'd say you are not alone. You have a group, a community, a tribe, check in, feel normal, come and spread your wings in a group that's ready to grab you. And then to the people, the corporate decision makers, you have your problem solvers among you. They're motivated to help you solve their problems, leverage them to your advantage. I'm so glad you got those very concrete pieces in because um, (laughs) when I thought about this, my advice to the innovator is know thyself. I ended up hiring for self-awareness. That was the big key thing for me because everything else can be taught, but the desire to understand yourself, your superpowers and your blind spots is an exponential accelerant. And to the corporate decision makers, I would also say, know thyself. If you can see that you're living in a volatile and uncertain world and you want to bring in those people, as Tracy was just saying, that can help you through this, those people are going to gravitate. They are high-performing people. They are going to gravitate to places where they feel safe. And so the corporate decision makers have a responsibility to know themselves and create a safe space for the catalysts and innovators. Okay, so I think that know thyself and you are not alone is a great note to end our conversation on. So that's it for today. Thank you so much for joining us on the show, Shannon and Tracy. Thank you for having us. This was NextWorks Innovation Talks. Thank you so much for joining us and follow us on nextworks.com if you're hungry for more innovation news and events.